We continue our worship now by turning again to God's Word, this time from the New Testament where our Lord, in His final days before the crucifixion, has gathered His disciples in the upper room and He is speaking to them. And in this intimate setting, He addresses His disciples in the first century as well as us in the 21st century. So John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Hear now the word of the living God. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Amen. Our Old Testament scripture reading and our sermon text comes from the Psalms, Psalm 63, one of the many occasions that King David finds himself running for his life. And so here in Psalm 63, we read a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, and your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth, They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Amen. 
Here ends the reading of God's Word. Let's join our hearts in prayer. Most gracious God, our loving Father, we come again in the matchless name of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. We again acknowledge, as we have just heard, that apart from the Lord Jesus, we can do nothing. So we ask now that by His Spirit, you would do your work in each of our hearts in this room, that you would illuminate your word to us, instruct, correct, encourage our very souls. For we are, again, needy men and women and boys and girls. So we ask for your rich blessing on this time. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Amen. Be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting great battles. It's a first century Jewish philosopher, uh, Philo of Alexandria. Closer to our time, a 20th century American philosopher said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. That was boxer Mike Tyson. Indeed, both of these philosophers are speaking truth when they say battles come at us. We live in a fallen world where sin has turned things upside down, and even in the clothing of the garments of salvation, we as brothers and sisters face all kinds of trials. Some are more weighty, the punch-in-the-mouth kind, like the medical diagnosis that no one wants to hear. Some of you here today are grieving, and it may even be hard for you to listen to the word being proclaimed. But big or small, all of the battles we face in this fallen world expose our hearts. They reveal to us and those around us what it is that we are actually living for, what makes you tick. I'm so embarrassed sometimes when I see how little it takes to expose my heart, my gigantic love of self. You know, in times of smooth sailing, you're probably like me, where it's, it's real easy to say God is good. But in times of suffering, we're tempted to wonder if that proposition is really true. And in those moments, we're tempted to look for security and comfort and peace in the things that we can see and taste and touch those things that are closest to us. So as we look together at this psalm this morning, and as we view it through the lens of Jesus Christ, I want all of us in the room to see and say in the first person, because the better-than-life love of Jesus frees me from guilt and fear, with gratitude I abide in his love. And I engage this fallen world with unshakable hope. So to that end then, that we would be those kinds of brothers and sisters who, who cling to this better-than-life love of Jesus, who, who recognize that we really are free from guilt and free from fear, that out of gratitude we would obey that command that we heard, that we would abide in his love and that we would move in this world with unshakable hope and confidence.
So to that end, then, we'll take up three points this morning. The passion of a satisfied soul, the commitments of a satisfied soul, and the hope of a satisfied soul. So first, look again at verse 1. The passion of a satisfied soul. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Who talks like this? Who, who prays this way? Only a man who is gripped deeply by the steadfast love of his God. So let's walk through this psalm. Let's, let's step into David's sandals for a few minutes this morning and just, and just walk through this psalm together. We know that the road is rough. David has survived so much. He's been running for his life on more than one occasion. And this time it is significantly grievous because the king is on the run, far from his throne and far from the tabernacle and far from his palace. Lost are his family, his throne, his reputation, and all of his security. And from whom is David running? His own son. His own son Absalom has rebelled and gathered others around him. And now David flees for his life and finds himself in the wilderness of Judah, in the desert, longing for the presence of the living God. This is a passionate king. This is a devoted king who has deep thirst. David says, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. You know, it's hard for us to understand what that's like to have that kind of deep thirst, to have that kind of deep longing. But we can imagine it's like the way that we need air. Children, maybe you've been in the water playing with your siblings and, and one of them pulls you underwater and you're, you're fighting to get to the surface. You need air. You need air to breathe. And, and so it is in this psalm that David recognizes he needs God in order to live. That he needs God. So, just as we need air, so David longed for the presence of the living God. In verse 2, we see something of a progression where David's longing takes him to a different setting. So, though he's in the desert, we find David in a different place. Look with me at verse 2. So, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. So, David, though he is in the desert, he is recalling the wonders of being there in the presence of the living God. All of those rituals of old covenant worship embedded in the heart of this weary king well up in worship so that even here in the wilderness, he finds himself in that beautiful presence of the living God. Though there's desert all around him, there was no desert in his heart. David goes on to speak of the beauty of this presence of God, this, um, the joy of intimacy with God. Look with me at verse 3. He makes this profound statement. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. David is telling us that there is something better than the air that we breathe. 
There's something we need more than the oxygen that feeds our bodies. What is it? It's steadfast love. It's steadfast love. It's one word in Hebrew. It's one amazing word that packs all kinds of significance. A profoundly deep theological term. It's used over 250 times in the New Testament. Steadfast love is a great way of describing it. Sally Lloyd-Jones in a children's Bible uh, paraphrases it like this. The never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's a great way of capturing that. It is in never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. I mentioned its use throughout the Old Testament. Later, we're going to sing, later in our service, we're going to sing Psalm 23, um, where we sing of the way that the goodness and mercy of God follow me. It pursues me. One of those terms is this one, the, the love, the steadfast love of God. It pursues me, it finds me, it chases after me. It meets me even in those broken desert places of my life. So you see, David prioritizes the steadfast love of God over everything. And because he does then, because he does that, we find him looking to the future with incredible optimism. Notice as we go on the tenses of these verbs. Because your steadfast love is better than life, what? Verse 3, my lips will praise you. Verse 4, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. So though he is still here in this dark and broken battle, this challenging space in life, David is optimistic. He is confident that because of the steadfast love of the Lord, he will, he will find a way home. He will find a way home. So brothers and sisters, what do we take away from this passion of David? What do we take away from this passion of David? It's a good time for us to just check our own hearts. To check our own hearts and acknowledge that it's so easy for us to replace the steadfast love of God with the steadfast love of self. And when we, pray, when we replace the steadfast love of God with a steadfast love of self, we end up turning towards all kinds of counterfeit gods. Have you been to a cafeteria where they have a display of the food that's being served, but it's made out of plastic? Have you seen those? Here's a little plastic version of the meal. So often what we do in this broken world, especially in this world when we're suffering, is we reach out and grab those plastic meals and we think they're going to satisfy us. These are counterfeits. They're not real. They have no nutritional value. And so it is with the idols of our heart. So it is with those places that we so easily turn in the face of hard trials. So I just want to ask you to evaluate your hearts this morning. Are there places where you are exchanging the truth of God for a lie and moving towards things that you think will satisfy that never will? So it's often the very good things like family, health, food, friendship, homes, 
job satisfaction, financial security, productivity, entertainment, music, sports, sunsets, beaches, computers, and even those pesky iPhones. There's nothing inherently wrong with any of those things, but when we give them too much significance in our life, we make them out to be gods, and they disappoint us. David is inviting us to consider to share his passion this morning and to lift our eyes to a God who promises, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, never will he disappoint you. So that's the passion of King David. We've seen that. Let's think about the commitments of a satisfied soul. In other words, how does David fuel this passion? How does the king fuel this passion? And let's just look at two things. The first one is joyful meditation. Look with me at verse 6. We've moved now from this place in David's mind of great security and hope in the presence of the living God. Now we're back in the wilderness with him. We're back in the wilderness with him. And look with me at verse 6. What is he doing? When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. This is joyful meditation. This is David reminding himself in the middle of those hard and sleepless nights that his God is faithful that his God will never leave him nor forsake him. The Puritan John Newton said it like this, everything is necessary that God sends our way. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. Hear that again, friends, as you think about those broken places in your life, as you think about that, that situation where the, the fallenness of this world is bumping up against you, Everything is necessary that God sends our way. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. That is our God. So David reflects on that goodness. He cherishes that goodness, even in the middle of a long night, even when it seems all hope is lost. Joyful meditation. And so, friends, this comes then as an invitation to us to consider steering our thoughts to Jesus, particularly in those times of great frustration, in those times of great suffering, where it's so easy for us to be spiritual amnesiacs, spiritual amnesia, forgetting all that is right and noble and true and leaning into the things that come most naturally to us. It's in those moments that meditation on all of the good things that God has done and is doing will lift and steer and correct our hearts. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. The poet David here paints this beautiful picture of a mama bird's love for her little ones as she spreads her wing over the children, as she gathers them in and protects them. 
David is experiencing that expression of love as he meditates, as he reflects, as he remembers. So one of the commitments of a satisfied soul is joyful meditation. Another one is confident approach. Confident approach. Look with me at verse 8. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. David uses this beautiful covenantal language. It's uh, clinging is a covenant language. The way God clings to his people. David is saying, I cling to you like that. The way a husband clings to his wife. Same words here from Genesis 2 that some of us in the marriage conference looked at yesterday. He will uh, leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. So as a husband clings to his wife in that oneness, in that beauty of Christian marriage, as our God clings to us, so David says, I am reaching out. I'm clinging. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. So even as he describes this beautiful, um, confident approach, David's mindful that it's really more about the living God holding on to him, right? My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. So if in verse 7, he's giving us this beautiful picture of the mama bird, here in verse 8, he's giving the picture of a strong father. Some of you parents have had that moment where you, you get to the ocean with your children. And very confidently, the children want to wade out into the waves and they cruise out there like they're going to conquer the world. And as those waves start crashing a little closer to them, what do they do? <laughs> they reach up for a hand, right? They reach up for a hand, and there's the dad grabbing the hand and, and moving into the waves. And as the waves break over, what does daddy do? Whoosh, lifts you up. Lifts you up and draws you close. And looks you in the face and says, I got you. I'm not going to let you go. And then as the waves subside, places the child back down, and, and into the waves they move again. Confident, because the one who is holding on will never let them go. So there's this joyful meditation. There's this confident approach. And, and these are kind of those, those two commitments that David is demonstrating for us that enable him to have the kind of passion that says, your love is better than life. Your love is better than life. And again, I want to remind us, friends, as we're, as we're thinking about the, the, the psalm through the lens of Jesus Christ, that we're, we're thinking about this better-than-life love of Jesus that frees us from guilt and fear so that with gratitude we can abide in the love of Christ and we can engage in this fallen world with unshakable confidence. Your God is holding on. Your God has promised His children, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. 
So we're thinking about then the satisfied soul. We've talked about the passion of a satisfied soul. We've looked at a couple of the commitments of the satisfied soul. But as we move towards the end of the psalm, as we consider these final verses, beginning in verse 9, let's think about the hope of a satisfied soul. The hope of a satisfied soul. We realize, right, as we're looking through the psalms, as we're hearing about the life of King David, we realize that David is a man who needed mercy, right? David is a man who had a history. And so while the psalm is about King David, there's another king that's in the background. But let's just look at those two kings as we consider the hope of a satisfied soul. David rested in the sure knowledge that the one he called my God would never forsake him. Look there at verse 9. What does it say? But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Let's step back and think about the gravity of David's hopefulness here. David is a man with a history. David is a man with a past. When I was a seminary student, I'll never forget Dr. Baugh reminding us that when we, when we look at biblical texts, it's real easy for us to abstract these human beings and make them into superheroes, like cardboard cutouts at the movie theater. So here's King David with his sling in hand, and it's this oversized, super buff David. That's how we tend to think about the king. But what I want to remind you of this morning is that David was a very needy man. David is not an actor who's read the end of the script, but David is a man who's running for his life and really insecure and shaken. David had a history. He had a record. He was a man who needed much mercy, and therefore he appreciated the sweetness of that mercy. I mentioned there's two kings in this psalm. There's the King David who's on the run, and then behind him is King Jesus. Another king, right? Another king who was driven out into the wilderness, not for his own sin, as a result of his own rebellion, as a result of his own family's disobedience, but for your sins and mine. He was driven out into the wilderness. There was another king who was tempted in every way that we are tempted, and yet he clung passionately to the living God. And he meditated day and night on the law of God. There was another king who was hungry and tempted in the wilderness. 
And yet when he was tempted, he answered those invitations with the word of God. There was another king who said, I thirst. There was another king who cried, my God. And Matthew records for us about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So friends, as we look through the psalm, through the lens of this greater son of the great King David, as we look through the psalm, through the lens of Jesus Christ, we realize we have hope. We realize that we can rest in the sure knowledge that because Jesus did not receive mercy, but suffered the wrath and curse of God, we know steadfast love. We know covenant mercy. We know lavish grace. We know the promise that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So that's what keeps us. That's what keeps us is not our passion. That's not what keeps us, not our passion. It's not our commitments that keep us. And it's not even our hopefulness that keeps us. But what keeps us is this steadfast love of the Lord Jesus Christ that frees us. Frees us from guilt. Frees us from fear. And then enables us to live a life of gratitude in response. The true David entrusted himself to him who judges justly and laid down his life as the ultimate act of steadfast and loyal love. And here, in verse 11, David describes his own restoration in a way that we see with new eyes, because we know Jesus finally and fully fulfills this verse. The king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Maybe Romans 3 might be ringing in your ears where, 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 where we're promised that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. And we look ahead to that glorious day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Friends, every one of us is fighting great battles. Our hearts are often exposed just like David's heart is exposed here. I want to remind you that we need not fear because it is not your passion, it is not your commitments, but it's his commitment to you. His steadfast love never ceases. So because the better than life love of Jesus frees you from guilt and fear. With gratitude, then, you can live a life of obedience. You can abide in Christ. And you can have hope even in the midst of this fallen world. Oh God, you are our God. Earnestly, we seek you. Let's pray together. Most gracious God, we do 
delight in the manifold grace that we have received in Christ. That though our passion wanes and our commitments fail and our hope is often weak, that you are our God and we are your sons and daughters. That in Christ you have promised to never leave us nor forsake us. Would you grant us renewed joy and gratitude in light of this gospel grace? That we may be men and women and boys and girls who move out into this broken world with absolute confidence and with humility. That as we depend on you, you would continue the good work that you have begun in each of us. That as your stewards, we may move into the world and hold out incredible hope. So grant us continued growth and conformity to the image of our Savior. For we ask together in his name. Amen.